I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's, uh, it's this. What What's happening now is the podcast that this is. I'm Robert Evans. Another introduction in the bag. How, how'd we do, Sophie? Are we, are we, are we solid? Is that one gonna? That was a three out of ten. Are we gonna win a potty? A potty. <laughs> I wish that's what it was called. Yeah, that's the imaginary <laughs> podcast award I invented. I'm Robert Evans. This is Behind the Bastards, a terrible podcast about terrible people. Um that's made incompetently by me. Um, (laughs) I hope everybody's doing all right. Our guest today is Allison Stevenson. Allison is a writer, a comedian, and creator of the Audible original Like Mother. Allison, how are you doing today? I'm doing not so bad. Not so bad is excellent in 2020 (laughs) terms. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's that's the best. Yeah, as good as you can be doing. Yeah. (laughs) Allison, how do you feel about Germans? You know, not to, I. L- let's just say this: I am a Jew. <laughs> so let me be more to the point. How do you feel about the existence of the German state? <laughs> no, I mean, uh, you know, I've been dying to go to Berlin. It's a great town. Great town. Uh, I've has, heard good had some things. rough pa- rough patches a while ago. Yeah. Um, some sort of wall or something. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to be talking today about a lot of stuff. The guy that we're, we're chatting about is a fellow named Alfred Krupp. Does the name Krupp mean anything to you? Mm, I don't know. I don't think so. Does it? Yeah. Without Krupp, there's no Germany. Um, huh. Like no German state ever comes into existence without Alfred Krupp. Um, and also no World War One and also may, probably no World War Two. Uh and also, maybe no international arms trade today. He's that guy. He's that kind wow. of dude. Um, 
yeah, he's a he's a fascinating character. Um, and today we're going to chat about him. But we're going to start by talking about something that happened on October 1st, 2017, uh, when a submarine built in Germany by the Tyson Krupp shipyard in Kiel, North Germany, set sail for Egypt. It was the fourth submarine the Egyptian government had ordered from Tyson Krupp since the start of the Arab Spring, and its total cost was 1.4 billion euros. On its way to Egypt, it stopped at the port city of Emden, where it met a French-made Corvette-class attack ship, which was also built for the Egyptian Navy. Now, the hundreds of millions of euros in profit that these boats represented came from the taxes and natural wealth that, on paper, ought to belong to the people of Egypt. But they don't because Egypt is owned by the dictator who took power there in 2014 after a military coup, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. Uh, during his six years in power, Sisi has brutally cracked down on free speech, fought an unsuccessful but horrifically bloody counterinsurgency against Islamic extremists, and repeatedly murdered moderate protesters. Under his reign, food prices have risen and poverty in Egypt has soared. 33% of the country is now in poverty. Um, so things aren't going great in Egypt. And one factor is that the country is basically owned by the military, which is grafting tax money in order to buy weapons from Germany. Um, and of course, a significant amount of the money that's paid to Tyson Krupp winds up in the pockets of uh, Al-Sisi and of his 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 buddies, um, because that's just the way that military appropriations work in the global south. Um, this is happening not just in Egypt, but all over the world, but particularly in Egypt, because no country on Earth buys more German weapons than Egypt. Um, and this actually has been going on a lot longer than you might think. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, also, as a note, Tyson Krupp uh, makes all of the elevators you've ever been in. Um, so, yeah, big you know, company. this is freaky, but like I was for some reason I was thinking about elevators. And I, but I was thinking about Schindler. Yeah. Elevators. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's 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 uh, we won't be talking about it super much this episode, <laughs> but Alfred Krupp's descendants absolutely uh, were responsible for tens of thousands of slave laborers in concentration camps to make German submachine guns. They're cool dudes, the Krupps. OK, um, OK. Yeah, no, it, this this family's this family's got some history to it. Um and yeah, so I, I started with that story because I think it illustrates kind of a weird continuity because the relationship between Germany and Egypt and the selling of weapons actually started in the 1800s. And it's continued without break ever since through two world wars and like three or four different regimes. Um, and it's kind of a mark of how even though, you know, you've got guys like the Kaiser, guys like Hitler, the mm -hmm. leaders at the top change. The people actually making the weapons and in a lot of ways driving the conflicts don't change uh, because for one thing, the Krupp who was in charge of German arms production during World War II got arrested and sentenced at Nuremberg and did three years of a 12 year sentence and died the wealthiest man in Europe because the allies needed him to make weapons for the Cold War. Um, these are the guys who are who never get punished like right. We, we, yeah. we throw all the blame at the Hitlers and the Goebbelses and stuff. And like, obviously, those guys are fucking monsters. But the dudes who made the weaponry that allowed them to do what they did. And same thing with World War One. Those guys never get punished because everyone wants them to make guns. Yeah, they have a posse and everybody wants what they have, which is the ability to make more fucking guns. Uh -huh. It's good shit. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Yeah, I was like, yeah. great. That sounds that's exactly how <laughs> I would describe that. Yeah, it fucking rules. So Alfred Krupp. <laughs> It would be fair to call him like he's kind of like the real Tony Stark, right? If you want the actual guy, like he's 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 a brilliant engineer, inventor, innovator who sold weapons to everyone on the planet um, and who had and who was like a visionary. He's not just a businessman. He's a guy who's able to like innovate 
killing machines. And in fact, after a certain point, the only thing he was really capable of thinking about was how to build better guns to murder people with. Um, that's basically Sounds all this muskian. man ever did. Yeah. Yeah, he's got some musky quality to him. Um, yeah. Although, unlike Elon Musk, Alfred was talented. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, before we talk about Alfred, we've got to learn a little bit about his family because the Krupps go back quite a bit in Germany. The first information we have on the family, the first Krupp that we know about, was a fellow named Arndt Krupp who uh, moved to a city called Essen sometime in the late 1500s. Now, Essen is located in the Ruhr, which is a coal-rich region that's the center of German industry. Um, but at the time, it was a sleepy small city. And we know very little about Arndt because, uh, but that he was a man of means. We know he was rich because he signed his name in a book that was held in the city, like Hall. And if you had a signature back in the 1500s, you were rich. Like no, nobody was signing shit unless you had money back then. <laughs> um, now, our most important source for this episode is the book "The Arms of Krupp," which was written in the 1960s by a guy named William Manchester, who was a, a British man who'd actually fought against Krupp guns as a young English soldier. And I don't normally gush about the books that we have on this show, but I feel the need to here because the while "The Arms of Krupp" is preposterously long, it is a massive, massive book. It's very readable. William is a really, really funny writer, and I enjoyed every page of this book. And I absolutely recommend reading it if you want to learn about the arms trade that currently dominates the world, because it's, it's kind of about how it all got started. Um, and for an example of, of William's writing style, I'm going to quote here how he explains that he knew Arndt Krupp was probably fat, because this is, this is fun. <laughs> well, the record indicates nothing beyond a faceless blob. It is safe to hazard something about the first Krupp's physiognomy. First, almost certainly, he lacked the gauntness of later Krupps. Arndt was a 16th century German merchant, and we know quite a lot about the customs of that class. They were, above all, dedicated gluttons. Girth was proof of prosperity. The man who could out-eat his neighbors was admired everywhere. One performer devoured 30 eggs, a pound of cheese, and a large quantity of bread in a single sitting. He then fell dead and became a national hero. Seven-hour meetings were not uncommon. It has been estimated that the well-to-do spent half their waking hours either masticating or defecating. In these circumstances, only an abnormal meta metabolic rate could prevent a rich man from becoming obese. Which I did not know and find fascinating. That's so weird! <laughs> I kind of feel like we should bring that back a little. Mm -hmm. Just yeah, it, <laughs> it would be easier to chase down Jeff Bezos if he wasn't swole. You're right. <laughs> uh, I just find that amazing that like becoming a national hero back then was like yeah he ate himself to death. What a guy! Ah, uh. <laughs> died a hero. I hope my kids grow up to eat themselves to death one day. <laughs> <laughs> so what little we do know for sure about Arndt suggests that he embodied what would come to be one of the key Krupp family characteristics, the ability to profit from tragedy. Twelve years or so after he moved to Essen, the bubonic plague stuck, struck, and about half the town died. Corpses were piled up with no one to bury them. Whole neighborhoods became graveyards. All the good plague shit. You know the good plague shit. Yeah, we're there yeah. now. Yeah. Classic. This is extra meaningful for us. Yeah. Classic <laughs> plague. Uh, so while other men sold their property and drank themselves to death before the plague could get them, Arndt bet that he would live through the plague and he bought up their abandoned property. So all these guys are like, we're all going to die. Let's sell our homes and buy liquor. And Arndt's like, yeah, I'll buy your fucking houses. I don't think I'm going to die. And that's how the Krupp family first ends up super rich because they buy up all of these people's property when they the plague hits. It's, it's, it's always it's, property. It's always pro land's the only thing that's valuable. Oh, my God. <laughs> I say ignoring the real estate collapse that happened like 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just like the first Superman movie. 
Anyway, we don't know much <laughs> about the Krupps who immediately followed Arndt, other than that they survived the Thirty Years' War of 1618 to 1648 with their wealth and property intact. Uh, this would not have been easy. The area Essen was in was invaded by Danes, Swedes, Spaniards, Bohemians, and worst of all, the French. Um, and about two-thirds of the population of Germany died during that war. So, again, and also, there's no Germany during this. Like, I'm saying Germany because people roughly know the geographic area. Germany mm-hmm. doesn't exist at this point. Like, it's a bunch of warring kingdoms. Like, you've got the Prussians and the Austrians and the fucking— And Bohemians. And Bohemians. Oh, filthy Bohemians. Yeah. Um all these different, all these different people. They're all, and they're always shooting each other too, and they're getting shot by everybody else. And they're, they're, they're kind of one of the things that's interesting about the Germans in this period is that they're like famously, um, famously polite and humble because they get their asses kicked so much, um, which is a reputation that changes because of the things that we're about to talk about in this episode. Because, <laughs> yeah, like I think yeah. I know, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they stopped being humble after a while. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so. The Krupp family, basically, yeah, the, despite all of this disaster, they managed to expand their land holdings and expand their wealth. And that suggests that they they all kind of inherited Arndt's trait of profiting from disaster. We know that one of Arndt's sons was a fellow named Anton Krupp, who is the first member of the family we have decent documentary information on. We know, for example, that at one point he received a significant municipal fine for, quote, beating Dr. Hasselman in the street, which I think rules. He just, he just got into a fist fight with a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> I think he got like a bad diagnosis or something. Yeah. I mean, doctors then weren't really doctors. They were just, they were drug dealers, yeah. um, which only about half of doctors are out today. Oh, so penicillin pushers. <laughs> they didn't have penicillin back then. Oh, it was no, just, not yet. yeah, it was just opium and scotch. Yeah. Oh, even better. And mercury. A lot of mercury. <laughs> they were like the original 7-Eleven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they were the original guy in front of the 7-Eleven who has yeah. a really bulgy coat. So in yeah. S- yeah. in 1612, uh, uh, Anton married a guy who was at the time one of Essen's most prominent gunsmiths, uh, and Anton got into the gunmaking business. He was selling about 1,000 barrels per year during the, uh, the Thirty Years' War, and he was described in a town council meeting as our highly honored patriot lord. Now, the Krupps didn't get straight into the arms business from there. And in fact, after Anton, they stopped for decades. Uh, the family made most of its money because they owned a large store and they collected rent from properties. And this was enough to make sure that the family's wealth grew every year. In the mid-1600s, a Krupp named Matthias bought fields east of the town wall that be- would become the site of the Krupp gunworks uh, that later armed Germany through two world wars. By the late 1600s, one writer described the family as the uncrowned kings of Essen. When Matthias died in 1673, the town left his position, the office of town clerk, unfilled until his oldest son was old enough to take the job. So that's how big a deal this family is in the late 1600s. Now, Krupp fortunes waned throughout the 1700s as frivolous family members and bad luck whittled them down from the family that owned the town to just another kind of rich family who weren't as rich as they used to be. They bought a large steel foundry at one point, but they sold it in the early 1800s. And this leads us to Friedrich Krupp. In short, Friedrich was ambitious, but either dumb or unlucky. He liked to spend money, and he had no real talent for making more of it. In 1810, he inherited the modern equivalent of a million dollars. Friedrich had other siblings, but the Krupp family tradition was for the oldest son to get everything. And this is how the family succeeded in holding on to all of their wealth and influence over the years. But it put them at a disadvantage when a real dummy happened to fall out of a Krupp lady's (laughs) womb first. And that's what happened with Friedrich. Yeah. Uh, his first decision was to scrap the business like the the store that his ancestors had made all of their money with and instead invest in an exciting new venture, cast steel. 
Now, at the time, people are real shitty at making metal. Okay, so like metal's hard, right? Like you've got bronze, which is pretty easy to make and uh-huh. kind of durable, but it it sucks when it comes to making cannons. Like if you're trying to blow things up through bronze, you can only make shoot things that are like projectiles so large. It can only handle so much powder without exploding. Um, so it's, I mean, it's I'm going to take your word for it. Yeah, it's just not a yeah. great thing to make cannons out of. <laughs> It okay. was the only thing Good that they to know. could do it. Yeah. So like <laughs> at the time, steel had existed for a while. And in fact, some people will suggest like, we, you know, the Spartans, everybody talks about how they were like famously good warriors. Um, there's actually a school of thought among historians that suggests like they weren't any better at fighting than anyone else. But the nature of the iron that was in there uh, uh, that was like in near Sparta was very easy to kind of accidentally turn into steel. And steel is a thousand times better than any kind of like ancient metal than bronze or than mm. just straight iron. It's just much more durable. And so the Spartans had steel blades and that's why like they were famous just because they had better technology. And that's kind of what everyone was looking for in the Napoleonic era, right? Like no one's good at metal yet. Um, people have started to figure out how to make steel um, but they haven't gotten good at it. And cast steel is like modern steel. It's like the shit that you can make skyscrapers with. It's the shit that you can make battleship cannons with. It's it's like kind of the necessary precursor to the modern world. You can't have the modern <laughs> world without quality steel. And people had started to figure it out, particularly the British had kind of started to figure out how to reliably make modern steel, which again is cast steel. When I talk about cast steel, that's what I'm talking about. But no one was very good at it. And Friedrich Krupp it becomes obsessed with making cast steel. He thinks that's how he's going to revive the family fortunes. And I'm going to quote now from a passage in the arms of Krupp. In the Napoleonic era, cast steel had a special cachet. It was the nuclear fission of its day. Mysterious, glamorous, seemingly limitless in its possibilities. Steel, low-carbon iron, tough and malleable, is not a natural phenomenon. And in a time when chemistry was poorly understood, it was regarded as a marvel. In the past, smelters had produced small quantities of it by manipulating ore and carbon with rods, meantime regulating the flow of air through bellows. To produce the metal they worked on, its feel, on its appearance, on hunches, and on slights and arcana, handled down from fathers to sons. Until the 19th century, these hit-or-miss methods were good enough. But now, in the spring of the machine age, Europe was crying for big chunks of high-quality steel. The old smiths couldn't help, nor could the operators of blast furnaces. Furnaces produced only cast iron, which, with its high carbon content, was too brittle to be satisfactory. Attempts were made to fuse several small ingots of steel and cast them as a single block. The smiths were frustrated because the oxygen in the air combined with the carbon in the steel, ruining the whole batch. Yet some men could bring the thing off. The secret existed and had been discovered. To the great annoyance of Napoleon, the discoverers were Englishmen. Not only had the British cornered Castile, they held their monopoly of it for 70 years. So the British figure out Castile and no one on the continent has it. And this is one of Britain's main military advantages is they have good steel. And Napoleon wants it because he's still fucking around with brass cannons, which are trash. Um, And so, you know, Napoleon is at this point fucking Napoleon. He's the he's the emperor. Um, and Germany is just like a bunch of little warring states. So everyone kind of is looking to Napoleon, even the people outside of his borders. Young Friedrich Krupp became obsessed with the idea of figuring out how to cast steel for himself and his people. And yeah, uh, Napoleon announced a prize to whoever could figure out how to cast steel for continental Europe. He was going to give them like thousands and thousands of, of pieces of gold and shit. It was just a fortune worth of fucking French money. And so in 1811, Friedrich Krupp founded uh, the Cast Steel Works with the ambition of like winning the prize that Napoleon had set out. Now, this was an ambitious goal because Friedrich had no idea what he was doing. 
Uh, he grew increasingly obsessed with trying to puzzle out the secrets of Castile and burnt through his entire inheritance to buy, buy property and equipment while at the same time neglecting the store that had brought his family most of their wealth. His eyes were always on the prize the emperor had promised, and he began making loud public boasts about he ba- how he'd basically already figured out how to make Castile. In December of 1811, he declared his loyalty to the emperor of France. This was bad timing, since it was at the precise moment that Friedrich declared his fealty to France that the emperor lost his entire army in Russia. So Friedrich like declares himself loyal to the French crown, and then the French crown loses all of its power by getting massacred in the, the frozen steppes of Russia. Bad timing for Friedrich. Yeah. Uh, so he basically, his loyalty wound up guaranteeing him a doomed job digging trenches for a French army that got its ass handed to it by Prussia while Napoleon was running away from the Cossacks. And the good news is that nationalism didn't exist back then. So most people in Essen felt as much loyalty to France as they did to Prussia. Uh, cause again, no one's really German then. So as soon as Prussia took over and Napoleon's empire collapsed, nobody like got revenge on Friedrich, which is what would have happened later. So he got to keep Wait, his so ancestral Friedrich's house. Wait, so Friedrich's poor now? He's got no money? Yeah, yeah, he's broke now. Yeah, he's broke as shit. Um, huh. he give, Yeah, he loses all of his money trying to make Castile. He fails. The emperor he was hoping to get a reward from is no longer the emperor. And it's just, yeah, it, trash luck and also kind of a dumb guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, Friedrich wasn't completely like a failure. He succeeded in getting the Krupp family's first military contract, but which was just like supplying steel bayonets. Uh, and he sold quality tools and dyes, but he was never able to make enough money fast enough to like make up for all of the debts he'd incurred trying to figure out how to make cast steel. And of okay. course, the other family business failed. Uh, so Friedrich did throw a bunch of money into making a big machine shop, which was uh, finished in 1819, but only worked about half the year because he fucked up on like it would rely on the local river in order to be able to function because you don't have like electricity then. So people will use rivers to like move the different wheels and shit that need to. Anyway, it's a bad, he, he makes a bad bet and his fucking machine shop doesn't work. And he spends the last two years of his life impoverished and bedridden, ranting incoherently about his ruined life and fortune. He dies at age 39. Damn. Um, yeah. So kind of a bummer of a story. Uh, yeah. Wow. Now, so don't always chase your dreams is the point of that story. Don't ever chase your dreams. Yeah. Never, yeah. ever chase your dreams. If there's one lesson of this podcast, it's that dreams are a bad idea. Yeah. Um, and it's okay should, to give up. Yeah. If everyone would just sit alone in a dark room until they died, we would have no Hitlers, no Stalins, no Saddam Husseins. No penicillin either, so it's a mixed bag. Um, yeah, but we're yeah. not leaving our house. So, But we're not leaving our houses. Who's, how, how are you going to get we're sick? We're not getting syphilis. Yeah. 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 Anyway, uh, enter <laughs> Alfred Krupp. So Alfred Krupp was uh, Friedrich's son, and he was 14 years old when his dad died, but that was enough to make him a man by the standards of the time. And he was, to say the least, an odd child. He was terrified of fire, which is like not unreasonable, but if your entire family business is operating a forge, it's kind of weird that you're scared of fire. <laughs> um, he was fascinated by smells, and particularly the smell of horse shit, which he loved more than anything in the entire world. Okay. This dude, his entire life, loves horse shit. Like, cannot okay. get enough of it. Thinks that it, like, inspires him and, like, sets his mind going and gives him his best ideas, and it's great for his health. Like, what? he absolutely loves horse shit. <laughs> Is there anything behind this or is it just we don't I I don't know, but it's his entire life. We'll talk about horse shit a few times in this episode because he's fucking loves horse poop. Damn. 
Yeah, it's very strange. He was equally insistent. As much as he loved horse poop, he was insistent that his own breath was poisonous, and so he moved around constantly in order to avoid breathing it in. He was convinced that if he stayed in the same room for too long, he'd breathe in all the oxygen and die. It's a weird ass dude. <laughs> He's a very weird dude. He's a weird ass um, guy. I don't so like, know. Yeah. As a result of this, sleep was a nightmare for him. He couldn't really sleep. He had chronic insomnia his whole life. Like he's just a miserable, neurotic wreck of a man who loves horse shit. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's a very strange dude. And I'm gonna quote William Manchester writing a little bit more about him here. What can I ask real quick? Yeah. How so? Was he like carrying horse shit with him? He just like, made this... sure horse shit surrounded all of his homes, okay. and also later in life made sure that his homes had specific like ducts to take the smell of horse shit up into his rooms. Whoa. He wanted everything around him to smell like horse shit at all times. He loved you. He could not get enough horse shit. This is really making me want to smell horse yeah. shit. I'm very. It's curious. not great. Like it's not as bad as normal shit because they're vegetarians, right? Like they don't right. eat meat. Like I've I I grew up with like cows and horses and shit on like pastures, and like it's not as bad as you know dog shit or something. But it's not a pleasant smell. It's shit, you know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, here's William Manchester writing about this weird ass poop loving dude. Yet his chronic insomnia, which would have crippled another executive, actually may have made Alfred more efficient. He was such a bundle of neurotic quirks that they seemed to have supported one another. At night, for example, he wrote business memoranda. A compulsive writer, over 30,000 of his letters and notes are extant. He trained himself to scribble in the dark, crouched, sweating under his eiderdown. After dawn, flushed his workers from their beds, they would find Krupp's scrawled praise or scorn. He propped on their benches. To them, his energy was a marvel. To us, the greater marvel is that he kept this up for over 50 years without once being instant institutionalized <laughs> so he's a bizarre man and no yeah, fucking like, shit robert no fucking yeah. shit <laughs> he's <on>. so weird <laughs> anyway this is the man who helps invent the military industrial complex and creates germany um he's Damn. a fun fun dude yeah what a fantastic way to introduce this episode i mean honestly <laughs> So Alfred inherited a <laughs> tremendous amount of debt and a broken business because, again, his dad was kind of a dumbass. But Alfred was not dumb. One, one thing, you, like again, unlike Elon Musk, he's legitimately a genius. Uh, and he was very shrewd enough. He was shrewd enough to see what assets he had. The forges he'd inherited were substantial. And while his father never unlocked the secrets of cast steel, um, it, they were good enough to make stuff people could use. And for so for four years, Alfred toiled, learning through trial and error how to make stronger and more useful steel and also developing an eye for business. He broke even for the first time in 1830. And from then on, his career moved steadily upward. He'd inherited four workers from his father, and thanks to a family loan in 1830, he hired five more employees that year. Alfred was obsessed. He inherited workers? Yeah, yeah. Workers go, come with the company. It's it, They're still kind of like, like they're peasants still at this period. So it's oh. kind of like, it's, it's, it's not, you don't quite own them because they can quit and go find other work, but it's really uncommon. You tend to work for the same people your dad worked for, right? Oh, like that's kind of the norm. Yeah, this is not that far from medieval times, right? Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Alfred actually is responsible for kind of turning Krupp into one of the first like modern style businesses in the world. Like he invents the pension, among other things. Huh. Um, yeah, he's a weird dude. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> 
Alfred was obsessive. He rode his workers relentlessly to ensure the steel they produced was as close to perfect as possible. He toured with samples of his products all through central Germany and returned home after three months with pockets filled with orders. In his first sales trip abroad, Alfred had found his first true talent, salesmanship. In 1834, when the 36 Germanic states of Europe established their first common market, which abolished all the internal tariffs, Alfred pompously sent the government a letter declaring that he would meet all of the German Union's steel needs on his own. This was a lie. He couldn't do anything near this. But it got his name in people in government's ears, and that was his goal. So as Alfred developed new methods of making better and better steel, he grew equally paranoid about corporate espionage. He started requiring all of his employees to swear personal oaths of loyalty, and he started locking them into the works when they were doing their job. Um, He's, again, kind of a dick. That seems to be a theme is like paranoia with these types of people. Yeah, I mean, one could argue it's not doesn't make them bad at their jobs. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, Uh, so he hired a bunch more people. He brought in his close relatives to help him manage the growing plant. And in 1838, he felt comfortable enough to leave on his first international sales trip to France and England. France had a lot of business to offer Krupp. Uh, And most days he returned to his hotel triumphant with more steel orders to send back home. But on the rare occasions when he was turned down, Alfred collapsed entirely. At one point, he was bedridden for five days after a French company refused to buy his product. So, yeah, he's neurotic again. On the whole, the trip was a success, but when he left France for England, his goal was not to make more sales. Because, see, English steel was still the best in the game. Alfred was kind of verging on cast steel, but he wasn't as good or consistent as what the English could make. Um, And England was the most industrialized nation in Europe at this point. Krupp had nothing that they wanted, so he couldn't sell anything to them. But he wasn't there to sell. He was there to engage in corporate espionage. And thankfully for the English steel industry, he was terrible at it. His first plan was to Eng- enter England on a <laughs> fake passport with a name that he thought, based on nothing, nothing sounded English, uh, a- Alfred Krupp, C-R-U-P, instead of K-R-U-P-P. <laughs> like he thought that that would make him pass. He bought a pair of spurs, which English gentlemen wore in those days, and he teamed up with another Germanic merchant with the idea of th- that they would pretend to be British people looking to learn the secrets of fine steel production. Wouldn't whole- some sort of accent give them away? Well, the other thing that would give them away is that neither of them spoke English. <laughs> like they, it wasn't that. even that they had an accent. They only spoke German. <laughs> like, Alfred had memorized a couple of pleasantries from a phrase book, but he could not talk to people. Um, he'd figured that the dozen words he knew and his fake name would let him pretend to be an Englishman who just spent time on the continent for a while, and it did not work. Everyone who met him immediately realized he was German, but they did not care either. Like They weren't scared that he would spy on them. Um, and he was so bad at espionage that some of the English steelmakers he met even figured out that he was Alfred Krupp without saying him saying a word. And they still <laughs> gave him tours of their factories because they're like, he's not going to figure it out by just walking around the factory floor. Yeah, And he didn't. He, he was terrible at spying on people. He stayed there for five months and he learned nothing. And he also sold nothing. And it didn't matter anyway, because before much longer, Krupp figured out how to make cast steel of their own. And once he was home, he set to work figuring out how to take advantage of the fact that now he made pretty much the best steel outside of England. And the obvious answer was the armaments industry. On his way home from England, Alfred had developed a dream of making a new steel cannon. And this was very controversial at the time. At this point in Europe, all cannons were bronze. And for complex metallurgical reasons I don't understand, bronze cannons, number one, were only really short-range cannons. Like the big guns that you had in World War I that could bombard cities from miles away, you couldn't make those out of bronze. They had to be steel because they would explode under the pressures that those big guns did. And bronze cannons couldn't be breech-loading cannons. 
This is an important but kind of like, I don't know, nuanced gun difference. So barrel loading cannons work the way they sound, right? You you jam a bunch of powder into the barrel, then you shove a cannonball in there and you light it from behind and it, it shoots the cannonball out, right? That's the cannons you see in all the pirate movies. And uh, stuff. Yeah, totally. Yeah. A breech loading cannon loads the way that like a double barreled shotgun does today where you put the round in at the back of the gun. This has a bunch of advantages. Uh, it makes it fire a lot faster. It allows for more advanced kind of gunnery. It allows for like shells that are instead of just like a cannonball, it allows for explosive shells to be fired. It's kind of you in order to have a modern artillery, you have to have a breech loading gun. Um, people had been dreaming about them for a while. Leonardo da Vinci had sketched breech loading guns and they people had tried to make them for centuries, but they'd always exploded and killed the people manning them. So folks had just figured it's impossible Not to great. do. Yeah. <laughs> so Krupp has a dream that he can make this like a steel cannon that will allow him to do all this fun kind of cannon stuff that he wants. And what a dream. What a way yeah. to envision your your future. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense at the I'm time. I'm going to get this gun right. Yeah, I'm going to make the best gun anybody's ever made so that Europeans can kill each other better. <laughs> like that that's that's this whole this guy's whole entire life. Um and yeah, it was um you couldn't really have like because brass cannons were the only cannons that existed, you couldn't really have big guns. Even Napoleon, like Napoleon was a famous artilleryman, but his guns actually were, were pretty tiny compared to like what we now consider modern artillery to be. Well, they were uh, big it, they were big compared to him. Yeah, they were big compared <laughs> to him. That's that's very funny. Actually, you know, oh that's kind of a so sign much. that it's <laughs> mm -hmm. No go ahead. <laughs> I yeah, would think it means tried he's pretty to do, confident like, in his masculinity. Yeah, he's, I, I mean, <laughs> he, he had he had reason to be. He did he did almost beat all of Europe in in several wars. Um, uh, you, so, Robert, yeah. you know what you know you know who didn't beat Europe in several wars? It's it's time for an ad break, and that's my really bad. Are transition. are we not sponsored by? the emperor napoleon no 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 he, <laughs> oh. he he is not sponsoring this episode unfortunately he's uh, that no longer with us unfortunate i have geared this entire episode to winning the emperor's favor um <laughs> well i guess we'll try to get czarist russia as a sponsor um until then here's some ads the evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. 
We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. We're back, and I'm being informed that some some tragedy seems to have befallen the Romanov dynasty. So I don't think we're going to be getting a sponsorship from the Czar either. And yeah. that, is, that is a real Damn. bummer. I'm um, so sorry you're just learning this. I'm hearing good things about this linen character, though. So we might be <laughs> able to, I think he might like ads a lot. Seems like a real products and services kind of dude. That's so funny. We'll figure it out. So, uh, yeah, bronze cannons are kind of the standard in Europe at the time. And this dream of like the fact that uh, that Alfred Krupp is wants to make steel guns is not just like it's it's not just seen as like a, it's not seen as like a revolutionary thing. It's seen as madness because people had tried to make steel cannons and wrought iron cannons, and they'd always been disasters. And in fact, in 1844, the United States had built a 12 inch wrought iron smoothbore cannon for the USS Princeton. Um, And on the ship's gala voyage, they tried to fire it and it exploded, killing the secretary of the state and secretary of Navy. Um, So people aren't just like, this won't work. People are like, it's reckless to even try to make these guns. You fucking idiot. Um, (laughs) And another reason why people are obsessed with bronze cannon at the time is that Napoleon uh, had been beaten by Wellington with bronze cannons, right? Like Wellington, like bronze guns had beaten Napoleon 
40 something years ago. And people are like, why would we need to change? If it was good enough to fight Napoleon, it's good enough for anything we could possibly use it as. And it's kind of worth noting here that at, at this point, you know, it's been decades since Napoleon's defeat, uh, like a, more than a generation. And artillery had not changed at all. Like if you could imagine if we were still using the exact same weaponry that like we'd used in Vietnam or Korea, hmm. um, like that's kind of the situation Europe is in in the uh, in 1850, um, because things just didn't advance as quickly back then. Um, so it's 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 seen as kind of odd. Uh, in 1850, uh, Krupp and his workers put together a three pound cannon for an exhibition in London. And these exhibitions were like the arms trade shows of the day. Uh, there were places where all of the rich industrialists and scientists would come and bring all of their latest innovations and achievements and stuff. This is like the birth of the this is the Industrial Revolution, the birth of the steel age. So people are figuring out new shit every year. And like every year, so they'll gather in a new city to show off the cool shit that they've invented. And most of it's like it's like a violent science fair. Yeah, it's not all guns. <laughs> a lot of it is like agriculture. People are showing off plows and shit. But the guns like in Krupp is kind of the first person to realize that like, well, most of the products there are like tractors and plows and light bulbs. The thing that people boring actually shit that feeds people. Yeah, guns are what people care about. Journalists yeah. don't write about the boring shit. They write about the guns. <laughs> Everybody thinks the guns are neat. So. <laughs> He'd built this cannon a little bit earlier, this first steel cannon, and nobody wanted to buy it. But he figured, like, maybe if I take it to this exhibition, because people just fucking love weapons, that will build up enough buzz that I can start selling some of this shit. Now, he brought more than just a cannon. To show off his company's new capabilities, he's had his workers slather together what was then the largest bar of cast steel ever produced. It weighed thousands and thousands of pounds. Um, and yeah, so he just like he brought this giant lump of metal and a cannon to this show. Um, and his enormous steel ingot actually won the expedition because that was like for years in the 1850s, every one of these exhibitions, the product that would win would be like an a increasingly large lumps of metal because people would just Damn. be like, look at how much metal I can make. Now I can make more metal. <laughs> and most of this is because like railroads, the big thing at the time, right? So oh, by okay. making like, by making like a 10,000 pound piece of steel, you're saying like, I could make a fucking railroad for your ass real goddamn quick. That's the whole, that's the whole deal. You know? Wow. Yeah, it's a weird time. Um, <laughs> so he wins the exhibition because of his steel ingot, and the judges completely ignore his steel cannon. And Alfred was frustrated at first, because uh, again, his cannon had been ignored by all the people he'd wanted to buy it too. But journalists were drawn to the gun. And at first, the press piled on about what a bad idea a steel cannon would be. The observers, uh, the London Observer wrote, the brittleness of steel is so great that we doubt whether it would resist any successive cha charges of powder. Uh, but press within the London News and the Daily News had to admit that the cannon was almost hypnotizingly beautiful. One reporter regretted that uh, Krupp hadn't shown devices for, quote, grinding corn or surgical instruments or something more appropriate to this peaceful age and to the exhibition than a modern field piece. I mean, did he test it out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They fired it and stuff. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, people just kind of doubted that it would continue working and stuff. But, like, again, he most of them, like, came around because they just thought it was so beautiful. And there's this one British journalist who writes that, like, it's kind of fucked up that we're trying to do this show about, like, the advance of technology. And, like, you don't come here with, like, new farming implements or new surgical tools, but you bring, like, a giant gun. Um, but that guy was actually kind of the one who misjudged what people wanted at the time because mm. the United States section of the fair to show you how different things were the U.S. all we <laughs> brought was guess. like a massive plow no we brought like farming oh. equipment yeah farming equipment a bunch of paintings of farms and shit uh, and everyone ignored it everyone ignored it in favor of the big German gun 
Um, okay. And that taught Alfred a lesson, which is that people only let people don't give a shit if you make stuff that will improve their lives. They like killing machines. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Yeah, it's, it's good. True. It's good. Yeah, it's uh, absolutely. Um, I don't buy a bunch of old cannons, you know, <laughs> or a bunch of old. Uh, I don't buy a bunch of old farming implements. I buy antique German handguns. It's weird. <laughs> it's what people I would, do. Huh? If I could afford it. Yeah, they're beautiful. And fucking plows are lame for yeah. nerds. Where am I going to put a <laughs> plow in eat. my apartment? Yeah. I'm going to put a plow in my apartment. What are you talking about? <laughs> so Alfred Krupp was the only man at the time who really like realized this, that like that you could basically at this point in time, weapons technology was entirely driven by militaries. And like there were there were outside firms who would make weaponry for them. But it was basically like, hey, we need this kind of gun. And they'd figured out how to they'd try to figure out how to make it. Alfred was the first person to be like, I'm going to make something they don't want and I'm going to force them to want it. That was new. And he was the first guy to figure this out. Okay. Okay. It was slow going at first. Generals and admirals and secretaries of war are inherently conservative men, and change frightened them. They wanted to stick with what had worked before, and brass cannons had worked before. It was almost impossible to get a new weapon system going. But journalists love new shiny things, and they love weapons, and so did their readers. And basically, Krupp figured out that he could stoke a nation's demand for guns by playing to the fact that people are drawn to guns kind of inherently. And he Damn. took a lot of advantage of that. Um, people suck. Yeah, they're not great. It's kind of a bummer, but it works very well for him. Um, although it is a bit of a slow burn. So at the time, advertising was not really a thing that existed in its modern concept. Like there were ads, but like the ad industry did not exist. Um, and so, yeah, Krupp like knew that these exhibitions, like even if no one bought his product, bringing it there could still be a success because it would generate interest and that would generate buzz and that would eventually lead to sales. Now, by this point in the 1850s, Krupp became a, had become a fairly large and successful steel company. He had thousands of employees by this point. And what they made their money on was making cast steel axles and springs for trains and, and uh, train tires, like what are called train tires, which is basically like like the, the, the rolling wheels on trains. Like he could make very like the best steel to make trains possible. All mm -hmm. of the early train tracks in the United States are made with Krupp steel. Oh. Um, yeah, like that's, that's how he gets rich. Like they're not making any money off of guns at this point. They're making guns, but nobody's fucking buying them. Like governments want trains and shit, and that's what they're making their profit off of. Um, and so Alfred's commitment to weaponry was, was kind of weird. Um, and his new, like he, he gets increasingly upset, obsessed with it. And for whatever reason, his kind of growing obsession with guns comes at the same time that his mom dies and he finds himself single. See, now it's sounding very, like, Oedipal, some, yeah. like, some phallic, like, you know, some penis thing going on. I don't know, because he's a weird guy when it comes to his relationships with women. You he could desperately... just stop with weird Oh, the horseshit guy? Yeah, the horseshit guy, The horseshit guy, guy is Come weird on. with ladies, yeah. <laughs> he's, um, that's, that's why he's the, come on. Yeah, his mom was even. basically his wife. Not that he, like, had sex with her or anything, but his mom cooked his food and kept his house clean and made his bed, and he had no desire for a wife while he had his mom. Because he he wanted he wanted a mommy wife like that was yeah, his his yeah, his, yeah. his priority was having the having another woman. mom dude would yeah. hate twenty twenty then <laughs> yeah yeah he wouldn't have been wild about it <laughs> he met the love of his life after riding into town from a long work trip and spotting her in the audience at a play her name was Bertha 
and she was less than half his age and not at all interested in him. But he was in love with her, and he was rich, and that was all that mattered to the people who got to make decisions on whether or not Bertha got married. She could barely stand Alfred, and it's kind of hard to blame her. The man was frightened (laughs) to stand near his own breath, and he loved the smell of horseshit. It was kind of a hard sell, falling in love with Alfred Krupp. his opening pickup line. Yeah. Definitely quirky. His <laughs> opening pickup line to her was where I supposed I had nothing but a piece of cast steel, I had a heart. Which I guess is kind of sweet. Huh. Yeah. It's not a terrible opening line yeah. for the age. Wouldn't get me going, but <laughs> No, but like, you know, it was a different time. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean it and it didn't work on her to be fair. Yes, um, I'm rich. Yeah. Is probably what he followed that up with. Yeah. Yeah. Now, William Manchester notes, quote, given Alfred's temperament, domestic happiness was impossible. No one could live with such a man. He could barely stand himself. The match was doomed and all that (laughs) remained was to define the exact nature of the distress. (laughs) Yeah, it's not a good relationship. But oddly enough, Bertha was the cold one in the couple. Whatever else you can say about Alfred, he was absolutely in love with his wife and he would spend his life obsessed with Bertha. Now, it was a love that knew nothing about her and like was absolutely uninterested in actually understanding her needs in order to please her. Um, Mm -hmm. Because again, he was kind of incapable of understanding other people in any way, shape or form. But he was madly in love with her and she kind of despised him. It's a bummer. Huh. That sounds like the perfect relationship to me. Yeah. That's like the kind of guy I'm looking for. Yes. I don't I don't think that you are. (laughs) I don't think anybody wants to be with Alfred Crump. Okay, no, not not him specifically, but So in order to woo her after getting married, he constructed a massive and completely insane house for her, the Garden House, which was a gigantic, mostly glass building that incorporated a number of greenhouses into it, which were meant to grow beautiful hothouse flowers. It also held habitats for peacocks, grapevines, pineapple groves, all in this giant glass castle in the middle of Essen, which doesn't sound terrible so far. That sounds lovely. Um, but there were some weird aspects of it. <laughs> but so it smelled for, like horseshit. <laughs> well, worse than that, actually, because oh. he built the garden house directly in the center of his giant steel factory. And oh, if you've God. never been in a steel smelter, they put out an enormous amount of soot and pollution. And as a result, within months, every window of the garden house was permanently stained brown and caked in filth. All of the plants died. I have to assume the peacocks did, too. Oh. He had basically moved his wife to a glass mansion in the middle of a smokestack. Oh, God. <laughs> Just, <laughs> What an idiot. Uh, And to make matters worse, the house had one other feature I haven't mentioned yet. There was a glass crow's nest peeking out of the top of the roof so that Alfred could spy on his workers at all times. So it was kind of a nightmare. (laughs) Um, In other words, I'm going to quote from the arms of Krupp here. Alfred was installing heavier and heavier machinery, and the grunt of his steam hammers rocked the foundations of his home. Bertha couldn't keep glasses on her sideboard. If she put them out after breakfast, all would be cracked by lunch. Alfred didn't seem to mind. He was proud of the house, and to his wife's annoyance, he became a homebody. When she complained about the dishes, an admiring friend jotted down her husband's reply. It's only a few porcelain plates. I'll make the customers pay for them. And when she countered with a plea that he'd take her away for just one evening to a concert, he answered sharply, Sorry, it's impossible. I must see that my smokestacks continue to smoke. And when I hear my forge tomorrow, that will be music more exquisite than the playing of all the world's fiddles. Jeez. So, terrible man to be married to. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. yeah. It is probably not surprising that Bertha left him as soon as she possibly could. And obviously, 
she couldn't leave him, leave him. Like there was no getting divorced as the right. wife of a rich woman in the 1850s in the center of Europe. But she claimed to be sick with exhaustion and may, she might have been a hypochondriac, but basically she she played well enough at being ill um, or she actually got ill because they did live in a poison box in the middle of a yeah. factory <laughs> that Alfred just kind of would spend, send her off to different spas and health cures and stuff in various fancy towns. Like that's what you did if you were rich and sick. You would go off to some spa to get to heal. Mm-hmm. Um so he sends her off I mean, to a bunch of these places. I mean, that's what they do today places. too, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's not wildly different they now. They get a private island just to unwind. Yeah, and that's basically what Bertha spends the rest of her life doing. Um, uh-huh. She's almost never home, only for like appearances sake. Every now and then Alfred will visit her, but it's incredibly awkward and she clearly doesn't want him there. Um, and it's I mean, kind, it's, fair enough, horse shit. Yeah, it's mm-hmm, not unfair mm-hmm. on her part, but it is very sad because Alfred never stopped being in love with her. Uh, He wrote her constantly laying out every detail of his life and business in agonizing, like, granular detail, which is why we know so much about him. Because he wrote about everything he ever did his wife. Do we know what she, did she smell like horse shit? Like, what's my, what's the, like, I. No, I don't think so. Would he be like, oh, I got you a new candle. And it would just be like a horse shit scented candle. He just liked having horses all around wherever he lived so that they would shit around where he lived. And it would smell like horse shit because that was his favorite thing. I just can't get over it. It's uh, very it's still, strange. I, you're saying things, but I'm still stuck on the horse shit. Like, <laughs> it's, it's kind of impossible not to think about because I've never heard of anyone having that particular. I mean, it seems like a kink at this point, right? Yeah, it's, it's got to yeah, be. It's yeah. got to be. Like his biographer even describes it as a fetishistic devotion to poop. Like it's very weird. Um, now, uh, so Alfred, again, wrote out every detail of his life to his wife in these con- this constant stream of letters. And Bertha clearly did not care and barely responded. She would occasionally justify her lack of response by saying she was too exhausted by her illness to write. Alfred solved this problem for her by providing her with a series of form letters that she could just fill in the blanks on in order to respond to him. And we have these form letters and they are the cringiest documents I've ever read in my entire life. Oh, my God. Yeah. Here's one of the form letters that he gave his wife. <laughs> I have received your note of blank and note there from with parentheses pleasure dash sorrow. And she could just kind of check whichever one she was feeling <laughs> that things are going not well. Uh, my, as for myself, I am very well, thank goodness. And yet certainly uh, and certainly not yet plump and fat, but hope this will remain so soon. Like these are all like different fill in blanks and stuff. Uh, and then it continues for like, since my last letter, I've been for a drive regularly every day through the delightful tear garden and go twice a day for one hour walking there in the most charmful company, which a king would give millions to see. And again, this was not what she'd actually done. This is what Alfred had written out for her to send back to him, because this is what he assumed she was doing every day. He was kind of trying to direct her life by having this letter in the hopes that she would do exactly what he'd written in the letter if she was going to be sending the letter back to him. Oh my it's God. very strange. It's very yeah. strange. Yeah. yeah. The letter ended with, uh, I am longing to be back with my dear husband and hope above all else that he will be pleased oh. with me. Oh, he wrote that? Yeah, he wrote that for her. Oh. <laughs> and then he ended it with, only do not write me too often. That embarrasses me because I cannot reply. Yours is ever, Bertha. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> that is one of the saddest things I've ever read. Oh, man. Yeah, that's pathetic. It's really a bummer. Robert, you know what isn't one of the saddest things you've ever read? The products and services that support this podcast? Why, yes, that that is correct, <laughs> sir. Yes. Yeah, they are fully devoted to their husbands, which happen also to be Alfred Krupp. But thankfully, he's been dead for decades. So more than a century, really. Products. 
The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way. Knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. 
All right, we're back. Okay, so Alfred's canon business uh, at this point was going no better than his marriage. By 1852, he still had not received a single contract for his new artillery. And so Alfred experimented with another revolutionary advertising tactic, the free sample. Better known for little plastic cups of snacks at Sam's Club and wee little coffee cups at Trader Joe's, Krupp did the same thing with field cannons. He sent the whole (laughs) cannon for free to the king of Prussia because he couldn't sell it. And he also had another one made and sent off to Tsar Alexander of Russia. While the king of Prussia couldn't have cared less, the Tsar immediately set to testing the cannon, firing thousands of shots through it and then examining the barrel for imperfections. When he saw it was untouched, the Tsar declared the cannon a freak of nature and ordered his men to preserve it in the National Artillery Museum rather than ordering more or something, which is (laughs) a bit of a bummer. So like he he can't catch a break in selling people killing machines, which really fucks up. Um, I'm starting to feel bad for this guy. Am I supposed to hate him? Yeah, eventually, but he is a sad character. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, yeah. So there was clearly no money in guns, but Alfred couldn't stop making guns. He and his team designed and built a new 12-pound cannon, and they brought three of these garg- And when I say a 12-pound cannon, that's the size of the weapon it fire of the ball that it fires is 12 pounds. Like, the mm. gun is hundreds and hundreds of pounds. Um, so they brought three of these gargantuan weapons to Paris for 1855 for the Universal Exposition, which is another one of these big technology expositions. And again, at this point, Krupp had made a grand total of zero dollars on cannons. The company made its money by this point selling revolutionary railway tires for which Krupp had a patent and by making machine tools. Krupp brought another gigantic steel ingot to this exhibition too, and this one was so large that it collapsed the floor it was standing on and nearly killed all the judges. (laughs) because <laughs> it's like tens of thousands of pounds and he won again of course uh his ingot won again <laughs> they're like but as yeah, usual yeah you win. yeah well i almost killed everybody like that's got like clearly this is the best piece of metal it nearly killed us all yet oddly enough they're not at all interested in the killing machines that he makes but of course as usual the press and the actual people who attend the show are fascinated by his guns. And Alfred had divide, devised like a beautiful way to show them off a special display with three steel cannons and six polished steel breastplates. It was the talk of the exhibition. But after six months on display, only one order came through 26 steel cannons for Saeed Pasha, the Wali of Egypt. And this is what I was talking about at the beginning. This is the start of the Germans selling arms mm. to Egypt. Gotcha. And it continues. In 2020, Egypt imports more German guns than any other country. So this starts under Alfred Krupp, and it has not ended since. Oh, wow. But selling a few... Yeah, it's it's weird how... how And it's the same company. It's Krupp in the modern era selling them submarines. It's Krupp selling them cannons in 1852. Like, huh. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. But selling a few guns to Egypt was not enough to make a meaningful amount of money for a company the size of Krupp. As the 1850s drew to a close, Alfred was still subsidizing his cannon habit by selling train parts. He'd nearly sold an order of 312-pound guns to the Emperor Napoleon III, but the deal fell through because a French family, the Schneiders, had just started a new gun works at Le Creusot. They lobbied the king to not buy German guns, and the first salvo would, would become an incredibly competitive international arms market. So, yeah, the three big gun companies in World War I and World War II are Krupp, Schneider, Creusot, and um, Armstrong, which becomes Vickers. And like, that's all cut. Like Krupp is the first of them. Schneider forms next. And we're about to get to Armstrong. But like, these are the companies whose arms race is why we have World War One, because they're all selling guns to each other. And like the, the thing that makes World War One happen more than almost anything else is there's a provocation. You know, the Archduke gets shot, 
But that stuff like that had happened before. The reason that they actually wound up fighting is that there was this interlocking series of rearming schedules, and everyone was convinced that they were in the best position as opposed to their rivals, and that if they waited to have a war in another couple of years, their rivals would have better guns. So that's like mm. why the fucking war happens. And this is this is the start of that process. So Krupp's first major international success came courtesy of Russia. After years of admiring Krupp's cannon in his museum, the Tsar finally started buying Krupp guns in bulk. They start buying thousands of these weapons. And this sets international arms dealers afire trying to copy Krupp's steel cannons. And it sets the governments of these countries equally on edge out of fear of falling behind. Alfred designs a breech-loading cannon in the late 1850s, and when he tries to sell it to the English because his own company didn't want it, another firm called Armstrong edges him out and promises the crown they can make the same gun but better in English. And this was this is really the start, the first arms race. Is this like, like, Alfred starts selling guns to the Russians. That freaks out the English and the French. He's trying to sell guns to those governments, but they build up their own firms, and they all start competing as to who can get the best guns fastest. That starts okay. now. Um, yeah, from the arms of Krupp, quote, the arrival of Armstrong completed Europe's deadly triumvirate. Krupp, Schneider, and Armstrong over the next 80 years were to be celebrated first as shields of national honor and later after their slaughtering machines were hopelessly out of control as merchants of death. So that's pretty cool. But yeah, that's yeah, good stuff. And it all comes from this guy who just like is obsessed with making cannons and wants people to like his cannons. And it, it leads yeah. to the killing fields of World War One. It's pretty sweet. <laughs> it's like a real admirable like i could see yeah. it being like a classic american movie yeah he is he's this bootstraps figure yeah. you know his dad leaves him in debt and like nobody takes him seriously everybody laughs at his guns and then his guns I'll wind up killing them. 20 million people yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> And it's funny, in World War One, a bunch of the shells that the British were firing at Germans and killing German boys with um, had Krupp markings on them because they, Krupp had the patent on the type of explosive shell that was most common in World War One. So all of the foreign countries who were using like shells with Krupp patented like explosives in order to kill German kids, those shells Whoa. had Krupp written on them because that was part of the legal contract they'd signed. Damn. Isn't that fucking cool? <laughs> uh, I don't know if that's the word I'd use, but <laughs> I think it's fucking sweet. I think it's awesome. I think that's that's just great. Because, again, you know, people talk about the fucking deep state. This is an actual example of that kind of thing. You've got, you know, these yeah. different governments. You've got the, the the French king in the war that we're about to talk about. You've got the Republic of France in World War One. You've got, you know, the, uh, the Great Britain and you've got, you know, the fucking uh, the, the, the Imperial Germany and the Nazi Germany. But behind it all are the same arms companies run by the same families right. that are to this day, in a lot of cases, still selling guns to people. Jesus. It's awesome. It fucking rules. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. Again, not the word I would use for it, but yeah. <laughs> by 1862, Krupp was at kind of almost the apex of his power. His dominance of London's 1862 Grand Exhibition was absolute. Past fairs had taught him that the mob doted on weapons, and he played to the gallery. An artist from the Illustrated London News sketched a group of objects exhibited by Mr. Krupp of Essen, Prussia, and the sketch bristles with objects of murder. One journalist did find a pair of railroad wheels, which had been run nearly 74,000 miles without having been again put into the lathe. But he was a digger, an exception. 
His colleagues' eyes were riveted on Alfred's artillery, and their speeches and their cheers were strident. The Morning Post, the Daily News, the news of the world were enthralled. The spectator rapturously told of ladies standing in mute delight and men dreaming of the battle music of the future. Even the wow. Times saluted the almost military discipline which prevails in Krupp's steelworks at Essen and concluded, we congratulate Krupp on the preeminent position which he occupies. And of Everybody course, just like, oh, man, I can't wait for this to kill me. They didn't. I, You know, it's weird that they didn't really. A lot of them didn't seem to be thinking about the fact that like their grandchildren would be murdered by the tens of thousands by the, yeah. the descendants of these machines. And it, it does say a lot about human nature. That like Krupp also invents railroad wheels, which can go for tens of thousands of miles without having to be repaired, like a revolutionary development that makes international trade possible, that makes it it, it, that crisscrosses continents, that like makes so many wonderful things possible. Um, But nobody cares about that because Krupp brought guns and like all these women are just like it doesn't go boom. Yeah. Men dreaming of the battle music of the future, which is actually the death sounds of their grandchildren. Like there were babies <laughs> born during this that would die to the descendants of these guns. It's awesome. It says so many good things about people. Yeah. Soon Krupp was selling arms all around the world. Prussia started buying his guns finally after he gave some to. Uh, uh, he, so he gave it like he couldn't sell a big cannon he brought to this exhibition. So he gives it to the king of Prussia and that convinces the king of Prussia to buy his guns. Again, it's a good tactic. Um, Austria puts in orders as guns. Russia brings buys more steel cannons, which inspires Turkey to start buying steel cannons. It had taken over a decade, but through a mix of savvy advertising and ingenious design, Alfred Krupp had succeeded in creating demand for his inventions. A local Berlin newspaper reported on one particularly large cannon deal with Russia by giving Alfred the nickname by which he would come to be known in history, the Cannon King. Wow. Yeah. I'm going to call him the Horseshit King. He's, he loves yeah. himself some horseshit. He does. He does. So that's in the end of part one. Uh, how you feeling, Allison? I mean, shit. I've, I yeah, mean, horseshit. 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 I'm not. Yeah. I can't get over it, you guys. I don't know if I can be on part two. <laughs> yeah, it's very strange. There's more good horseshit stuff in part two. Oh, I'll say um, that. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. We, we, lots more horseshit to come. Oh, yay. So how we uh how we doing? Uh how we feeling, Allison? Feel fine. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. You know, Are you feeling optimistic about human nature? Uh I you know, no. But I think that's the point, right? <laughs> yeah. No, it's a, you're supposed to feel bad. I'm gonna go good, feel good, bad good, good, good. about the nature of humanity while I cradle uh my nineteen ten Mauser um <laughs> and enjoy, you know, the same Thing that all of those people in 1862. Hey, were, Robert, were can doing. I have a cannon yeah. for 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 a present, please? I will do my very best to find you a cannon. So there you go. Oh not God. one of those shitty brass ones, either. Yeah, yeah, wa- it's got to be want steel. The, yeah, I want yeah. the good shit, guys. The non-horse <laughs> shit version. That fucking Kruppstall, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Allison, do you have any plugs to plug? By the way, I I have my the the Audible yeah. original. Like mother. Like mother. Like mother. It is nothing like what we've been talking about. It is a mother-daughter comedy starring me and Susie Essman. And we just argue a lot and it's very Jewish and fun. So, you know, if you want to check that out. No horseshit involved. There is no horseshit. horseshit. A guarantee. (laughs) Wait, now I'm like, wait, is there? No, there isn't. Yeah, no horse shit, but tune in for part two of this episode in which there will be a tremendous amount of horse shit. <laughs>
<laughs> so, strap in, buckle up, and prepare for the manure-filled conclusion of the life of Alfred Krupp on Thursday. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.